Beneath the clothes, we find a man. And beneath the man, we find his nucleus. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a Spannard on the on the go. <clears throat> Let's see. I was going to talk about some movie news and TV news, but I did want to address something that I saw online. And let me let me try to think when this would have been relevant to me. Huh. Maybe in my mid-20s, something like that. And what I'm talking about is Joss Whedon. Buffy the Vampire Slater creator, creator of Firefly, Firefly, Angel, and so many other things, comic books, of Avengers, Marvel movies. I ran across this article on Twitter, and later I heard Fat Man on Batman talking about it. And the article was about Joss Whedon, and I guess that he agreed to this interview. I'm not really sure why especially because it painted him in a really bad light. I was never what you would call a Whedonite. I was not in the cult of Whedon, but I really, really did like a couple of things that he did. One of them being the TV show Angel, which I was invested all the way through until the end. Buffy I never really got into, and I thought that would be up my alley. But I, I like the characters. I just couldn't get into the overall mythology of it. I guess it wasn't for me. Angel, on the other hand, was definitely right up my alley. It was dark and broody and more serious. The stakes seemed very high. Not that, that from what I remember about Buffy, that the stakes weren't big there. It just, it wasn't the same. It felt more personal on Angel. For whatever reason, the characters connected more with me. So that was really my first entry into Joss Whedon world. I did see the first season of Firefly. I thought it was great. I loved his X-Men run. He had one of the best X-Men runs that I've ever read. Uh, no matter what you might think of the guy. The work that he created is definitely consuming, in my opinion. Uh, those comics, I'll, I'll hold up with any story that's out there. Just fantastic. But going to this article and talking about this, uh, this guy, 
this creator, director, you know, writer. I I'm not really sure why he decided to do the interview. I I I'm of two minds. I know that when you read an article, you, there has to be creative creativity involved in it. So the way that the language is used to describe the setting, uh, the subject matter, you know, in this case, uh, Joss Whedon, I, I get that there's a, you know, a really great way to do that. And, uh, you know, where you're painting the picture for the person who's reading the article, you don't want a, a dull and dry, these are the facts. But I did find this particular article to be a little too flowery and too, what would be the word? Right. I, I felt like the writer was really in love with themselves and that they felt like they were scoring points with themselves in the way that they wrote the article. They were impressed with themselves. Sorry, there's a little bit of an echo in my head. So there's a odd break between what I'm saying and then what I hear in, in my ear. Because like I said, I'm, I'm doing this on the go, on my way to work, actually. So the article, the way that it was written, I was not as impressed with the information that was in the article. I thought was fascinating, cringy, and I didn't really understand why Whedon would agree to subject himself to the picture that was painted. And what I mean by that is the picture that was painted about Whedon in this is that he has not grown or really changed from the issues that he had a couple of years, a couple of years ago, where he got called out. He got called out by his ex-wife. He got called out by several people. He got called out by Charisma Carpenter, one of the uh, Angel alums. And the things that were said about him, man, they were rough. This article seemed to confirm all those things in a strange way. Now, we didn't did defend himself or try to defend himself, but that is maybe what is the most cringy part of the whole article is that in his act of defending himself, he doesn't necessarily say that he did do some of the things. Instead, he explains where his mental state was while doing some of those things. So he was definitely abusive and believed his own hype, treated people really poorly. And by the end of the article, it doesn't feel like he learned anything or like he's learned anything. He talks about working on himself because he can't get work anymore in Hollywood. I mean, if you step back and you take a look at, take a look at that fact, you can't get any work in the place that, you know, you got adoration and, and were catered to. And you were like a nerd prince 
you've been kicked out of the club. So you decide, well, now it's time to work on myself because I'm not doing anything right now. That just came off so bad, in my opinion. He should have been working on himself from the very first moment that someone pointed out his awful attitude. He um, and describes there or, or reiterates the way that he treated, for example, the people on the Justice League, how he had been brought in for Zack Snyder because Zack Snyder had, was going through a terrible loss of his daughter and his family was having a super rough time. Zach was having a, an incredibly hard time. I, I can't even imagine. That is one of the worst things that could happen to anyone is losing someone that they hold so close and dear, like a child or, you know, a parent or, you know, you know what I mean? So Joss gets brought in to oversee what Zach's already done. And instead, we came to find out a few years ago that he rewrote, reworked, and restamped the Justice League movie in a way that it, it was no longer what Zack Snyder had intended. And the movie is not great. And to learn on top of that, that Whedon was awful to the people on set, that uh, the way that he dismissed and diminished people's opinion, like Gal Gal Gadot and Ray Fisher, the the problem was already there for that guy. Uh, For Joss Whedon, I mean, he already had issues stemming from other people that had been speaking, and then it just avalanched. And the guy literally went from beloved to most hated. One of the few times where I felt like it was actually deserved. You know, I, I personally, when I was invested and was watching all the things that were happening with the various movements within the nerd communities and the entertainment community at large, you know, much of it had to do with how women had been treated in the past. And so there was a reckoning and a vengeance that came about where a lot of women finally found their voice and found their uh, courage to back each other up. And Wheaton was a part of that. And it was, in my opinion, well-deserved based on the information that came out from various uh, women. Now, were there some dudes that got buried under that as well that were undeserved? Maybe, probably, I don't know. Um, and will companies sometimes just distance themselves from you so that they don't have to carry the heat of that? Yeah, uh, oftentimes that is the case. I wish companies were a little more courageous sometimes and stood up for the people that they knew for a fact were not causing any issues. But that's not the world that we live in. 
I, I use James Gunn as an example of that. And I've talked about this before with friends and posted online about it. James Gunn said awful things coming up on maybe 11 years ago now. Stupid, awful things online. You know, grotesque things online that would turn your stomach if you were a parent. So when I say all this, I am not defending his behavior at all. It was disgusting. And if I had met the James Gunn of the then, I would not have wanted to talk to the guy, shake his hand, or or admire anything that he'd done. Well, fast forward to that James Gunn is not the James Gunn that we meet who brings us Guardians of the Galaxy. How do I know that? I don't. But I feel like you have to make allowances for people to grow if they say that they've grown and they've changed. In this case, with James Gunn, you had so many people that came out of the woodwork that spoke highly of the guy, talked about the, the kind of environment that he creates in his sets and what it's like to work with him. That was a very different picture than what was being said of about Whedon. And this goes all the way back to Whedon when he was a showrunner for Buffy and the environments that he created there. So you've got, you know, contrast where two guys did gross things, said gross things, thought gross things, treated people grossly. And one of them apologized sincerely, got canceled, lost his job at Disney, but he knew where he was and what he was about. Uh, eventually got picked up by Warner Brothers, uh, did Suicide Squad for them, continued to work and produce, and Disney changed their course and brought him back and, and allowed him to finish Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, you know, finish out the trilogy, as well as do a Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, which I'm very much looking forward to. So, you know, there's just a contrast there between one guy, James Gunn, who was repentant of what he had done, and one guy, Joss Whedon, who seems interested only in burying himself deeper, if this article is to be believed, and if it's reporting the facts. You know, that's, that's the other problem, is he subjected himself to this interview but with the way things are now how much can you believe of what is being said how much can be trusted how much is a twisting of words or a changing of perspective i i don't know i don't know but i will say if even half of it is correct it seems like whedon is unrepentant has a different memory of the events that were described. And that's a real shame. Because again, I, I like the guy's work. You know, it's, uh, 
it's actually something that I've thought of and discussed with before with Kenny, for example, you know, what do you do when you appreciate the art, but you really dislike the person? Um, that, that's a, that's a big question. So anyway, my point is when a writer, director, producer, musician, when they're creating and they're, you know, writing about things or, or, are making things or, you know, an artist or whatever, you know, insert any create creative thing person it's not like they're infusing only all of their own personal reality and experiences into that they're also imagining and trying to extrapolate and you know trying to live uh, in the fantastical of of their creation so with all that being said, looking back or thinking about the artist and the art, if the artist is, their personal life is grotesque and, you know, somebody that you would not want to be around, uh, would be embarrassing or should even be jailed in some cases. Can you still appreciate the art? I say yes, but I will also say from my personal point of view that if you do get to know the person and they turn out to be, you know, something gross, it does change how you see the, the work. And so in this case, with Whedon, yeah, it, you know, it, it makes me less apt to go back to the material as often. Like I said earlier, I, that X-Men run that he did, I, I still have it. I think it's some of the best writing. Uh, the art is great. Uh, by an artist named John Cassidy. So both of them together complement the story really well. And that's the other thing too. If the art was created by a single person, maybe it's easier to dismiss, you know, like a, like an author, the author of a book you love the story, you come to find out heinous things about them. I think that's a lot easier to put down and never go back to again, as opposed to art that is collaborative. So in this case, Whedon creating Angel, do the writers, the directors, the, the performers, are they all also subject to being punished, you know, and, and having the material removed from streaming and being unable for them to, to get checks 
from residuals because this one person sank the ship? I don't know. That's, you know, that's the question. It would be far easier if you found out everybody on set was discussing, right? Then that's a no brainer. Yeah. Like easy to walk away from that. But I'm not sure that it's easy to walk away from a collaborative effort. I'm, I, I think, and again, divorcing the person from his art is maybe the only way to move forward. Um, certainly he should not get the praise or, or be in high standing the way that he once was. It's certainly undeserving. And it was probably undeserving then, to tell you the truth. No one should be deified. Nobody should be put on a pedestal. No matter how much great work they put out, you know, Denzel Washington is one of my favorite actors and the way that he carries himself in life, he's not looking for accolades. He's not looking to manipulate his power that he has and bend people to his will. At least that's what it looks like from the outside. And I think that's the only way to survive the cult of personality that can arise from being a beloved creator. Some people take advantage of it. Obviously you see it all the time. And then you do see some people that live a quieter life and try to stay away from the power that's always available there for them to grab. And it's always power over people, you know, and that's, to me, that's admirable, uh, wherever there, that philosophy might come from, whether it's a strong grounding from family or if it's religion or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a good example for other people that have places of power because power in and of itself isn't bad. You know, if you're a CEO of a company, you are the head of a movie studio, you own a large business, you have power and you can wield that power for really great things, or you can use that power to hurt people and, and benefit yourself. Again, I don't know if that article is a hundred percent true. I don't know if the person had an agenda when they were writing it, by the way, the author's name, I believe is Lila Shapiro. It's easily, you can easily find it on Twitter. There's plenty of links to it. It's an interesting long read and it was a bummer. And it was the thing that was on my mind that I knew would carry me into other parts of this conversation with myself and with you guys is what should we as fans? Cause I'm still a fan, you know, it's weird. I, th I know that I'm a professional artist now. Enough people have told me I've been paid enough. I've done enough. Uh, I've created enough projects that put me in that lane, but I'm still a huge fan and I'm more on the fan side of a lot of things than I am of the idea that anybody could be possibly be a fan of me. That that's a weird concept not something that is comfortable to live in. So, you know, better just keep it off to the side, not something to, th to really think about. 
I've said this for years now that in my opinion, the best job that I could ever have would be to be in a basement somewhere and somebody runs in and yells, Hey, draw a unicorn. And, you know, I thumbs up it and start drawing a unicorn and then it goes out to the masses, but I stay happily, uh, what's the word obscure, you know, just where if I go to a convention and people know my work, fantastic, but nobody's actually looking to me to be, mm, well, I was going to say role model, but that's actually the wrong way to say it. I think everybody that is in their creative space ends up being a role model, role model for anyone that comes and asks questions and wants to know how the thing is done. So that's not the right question, but maybe more in the idea of admiration and fandom. I don't think I would ever, will ever be comfortable with the idea of somebody being a fan as much as somebody appreciating the work. And I think that there's a fine line between those two things. And as I've grown older, I've come more and more to admire the, the media that I consume. And I'm less necessarily of a fan. And I, I say that because I don't, as I get older, I don't want to be so tied to things that are not that they don't have meaning, but there's so many other things that are more critical and have a higher meaning in this life than the idea of me going to war for this media or that media, you know, for this art or that art. Like I, it just seems so silly. Uh, and I see it all the time and it's actually disheartening to watch. You can love a thing and you can disagree with people about their opinions about the things that you love, but I don't see any worth in attacking, going to war with people, believing that you're going to be able to change their mind, get them to see your point of view. And this actually goes with all of life, whether it's politics or, you know, media consumption or religion or, you know, whatever, insert whatever. The arguing is not the thing that's going to get somebody to come over to your side. The forming a, a relationship with that person or those people and, you know, walking alongside them and explaining your position will probably be, or I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent sure is the thing that wins people over more often than not. I see it in the way that my wife and I have handled disciplining our children or having conversations with our children. You know, when, when I first started out as a parent, I, not only did I not know what I was doing, but everything that I did was completely wrong. It was, you know, do what I say, not, uh, what's that, what's that way though, that, that old wording goes, do as I say, 
wow, I can't remember. I literally lost it. But we've, anyway, we've gone over from that to let's talk this through. Let's figure out why you want to do this, why you feel so strongly about it. Let us explain why we think this is a bad idea and it's unwise, and then we can all move forward from there. It's a much better result, in my opinion. Our children trust us more. They talk to us more. They're willing to test out ideas with us more. I think that's the way all social media should be going. I, I don't know that in the time that I've done podcasts that I've talked about this extensively either, but one of the reasons that I love Instagram so much is because it's a visual medium. You drop the, you know, whatever the visual is, you put a little blurb at the bottom and then you can piece out as opposed to something like Twitter or Facebook, you know, Facebook is a, um, it's a mixture of those two things of Instagram and Twitter, but let's take Twitter, for example, on there, you're dropping ideas in words and on Instagram, you're not necessarily dropping an idea. You're, you're dropping, I don't know, like a, a, a finished thing. So a photograph, a piece of art, you know, digital art, traditional art, animation, whatever it might be, you're dropping it there for the appreciation of the people that follow you, the people that might find it. And it, you know, it, it lives there for, for people to be able to appreciate it and to like on Twitter, you're dropping ideas in and those man. You can just go down a bad road. Number one, Twitter is a terrible place to communicate. Communicating in writing without it being married to intent can be even worse. And all you do is just see, I mean, Twitter's constant war. You know, go in, you can instantly see a thousand wars going on at any given time. And Facebook is the marriage of those where you can drop your war words and then follow it up with a war image <laughs> and, you know, just devastate landscapes. It's, it's wild. But the reason I love Instagram so much is it seems to be less of a area of wars and more of a, about a, appreciating work you know, visual medium work. And, I, you know, going back to the, the other thing that I was talking about, about appreciating people's work and developing a cult of pulse of personality, you know, or in this case with, with Whedon creating a, a fandom you know, it's something that we should be careful with from a fan standpoint of how we address and what kind of power we give to somebody that we admire. And then on the other end, the person that is being admired, 
should maybe strive to take the attitude of someone like Bill Burr, who is notorious for pushing away admiration, doesn't have any interest in talking about himself, would rather talk about sports or, or learn more about you, you know, just, I think that's the best way to go. You know, it's a thing that's probably going to keep you the safest. So with all that, uh, you know, I'm sorry that I went on a, on a long rant, but I thought it was relevant since Whedon has been part of the, the geek culture for so long, even if right now he's not considered relevant, the guy, his stamp cannot be dismissed in my opinion. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, Angel, uh, to a lesser extent, Dollhouse, and Avengers 1, Avengers Age of Ultron, so Avengers 2, I mean, those are huge, huge caps in the feather, or huge feathers, I said it backwards, huge feathers in the cap of Disney slash Marvel. Those movies cannot be discounted. You don't get to Endgame without those movies. You don't get to the expansion of the Marvel universe without those movies. And if you go back and you take a look at those movies, well, no Marvel movie is perfect, but you see the seeds of how the Marvel universe gets uh, shifted and settled in those movies. So, you know, I'm never not going to love those movies although the guy is highly questionable about, you know, appreciating his future work or how to think about those things within the context of what he's done and who he is. Let's move on to other things. Now, I want to touch really quick on Superman and Lois. It is back. I've only watched the one episode so far. I think the new episode dropped yesterday, I want to say, but, uh, I haven't seen episode two and episode three, seen episode one. I loved episode one. I continue to really like this show. I thought it was hilarious. I was telling my wife that there was some words that were used on the show that are, uh, what, what's the word for them? Uh, they're like buzzwords that are currently being used. It, you know, in, in real life, for example, one of the characters that might end up turn out to being a bad guy. I'm not really sure yet. You know, it's too soon to say usually TV series like this, they, they might have multiple bad guys on multiple fronts, like, especially with the, the superhero TV shows, you, you'll have a super villain that is giving the superhero trouble. And you'll also have a human villain that is giving the people around them that they care about trouble. So it's a, it's an interesting, uh, formula that gets used for this. It makes it so that everybody is relevant on the show and not just the, the, the actual person that you want to see. So, you know, if you're, if you're watching the superhero show, Really, you just want to see Superman going super fast, punching people, shooting lasers, 
catching stuff, <laughs> like crushing stuff. That's like mainly what you're in for. So the best way to get a, get around the expensive CG and, and, you know, not 40 minutes of Superman punching and kicking and, and lasering everything is to make the humans around him have their own struggles and, you know, real world dangers that they got to get into. So right now they've introduced a, a young, uh, black guy who looks like he's running for mayor and he went ahead and he used the term build back better, which, you know, you, you have to be living under a rock or, or, or uh, or up in the mountains and, and not have seen billboards around us or TV or whatever to see that, that scene. So I wonder, <clears throat> I was telling my wife, I wonder if that guy's going to end up being one of the human bad guys by the end of the season. And if it is, is it the writers being clever in writing him in, establishing him at the beginning of using that term, build back better, which is not very popular with people around the globe right now. Uh, if it is that, and that's what they're doing, you know, kudos to them. That's, that's fantastic writing, but we'll see. But the first episode I thought was great. It, it started at the end of last season where John Henry Irons daughter makes her way from their dying universe over to, and, and John Henry Irons is steel, by the way, from the comic books, uh, really well depicted. I'm going to have to start remembering names so I can, uh, give them kudos while I do, you know, this pod, but his daughter comes through like a dimensional rift. <clears throat> they have a reunion and then it starts from there. And in that reality, Lois Lane was her mother. So John Henry Irons and, and Lois Lane were married there. Superman murdered her. A bunch of Kryptonians murdered their reality. So the daughter immediately sees her mom and wants to connect with her instantly. But that's, yeah, it's not her Lois. And not only is it not her Lois, but you see Lois kind of keyed in on herself, doesn't know how to react and walks away. And it looks really like a, a bad decision on her part. And you come to find out during the episode, her reasons for why she reacted that way and why it did end up being a, a bad decision, you know, a, a very hurtful decision. You also see some of the, they're, they're starting to get more into geopolitics. You see Superman save a North Korean sub, and then he gets called out for it by the uh, general, the new general that is now his handler representing the United States. He and Superman have an argument about what Superman represents, who he represents. And I thought it was fascinating to see that and to see that being played out. It's something that they've talked about in the comics. <clears throat> you know, Superman started as a American superhero and exclusively American superhero. Then, you know, as, as the years have gone by, he's become an international superhero, a superhero for the world. And if you step back <clears throat> and you look at, uh, 
you know, the, the it, how that might make sense or might not make sense. It, it makes sense to me that if you had a, at least this is my perspective. I'm not sure that this is where DC's going with it. But from my point of view, if you have an alien super child that is raised by wonderful, loving, considerate, probably in all honesty, Christian, although that never necessarily gets called out. But let's just say in this case, people of faith, you know, with that foundation, you would develop a healthy, considerate, kind, loving Superman, which is the way that he's, you know, depicted in the comics. He's the, he's called the big blue boy scout. So it makes sense that the, the extrapolation from that is that you wouldn't have somebody that is only for America, only protecting Americans only like, you know, like, a the way that he was depicted in Frank Miller's dark Knight run, he is the hound of Reagan in that. And I, you know, looking over that years later, I thought that was an, a bad depiction of Superman. I, that's not the way that I see Superman as a, ultimately a hound for the United States. And he is only beholden to the United States and he's, you know, a super border patrol, uh, person. If, if he's raised the way that I see him being raised by the people that he was raised by, and he has the morals and the convictions and the, the morality, you know, that he, that I believe that he would carry, this is, this would be a person that if it was within his power, he would go out and help everybody and anybody that he could, even villains. So on the show, you see this North Korean sub going down. You see Superman, uh, you know, he hears their cries, takes off, saves them, puts him back in on North Korean land. The North Koreans are overly ecstatic, not only that they're saved, but they were saved by Superman, which I thought was kind of a bold move on the writer's parts because they're, you know, if North Korea sees this, they would call BS throughout the whole thing, including the, the ecstatic cheering that the North Koreans in the sub, these military people, uh, do for Superman. So. You know, it, it's not like, oh, we're saved. No, we're saved by Superman, you know, the, the symbol of America and that, and I will say in that he is, and will always be a symbol of America. That is the one thing that I will fight anybody on, even if the guy is international and he's willing to go out and save everybody and anybody, he is an American symbol. He's as American as apple pie, as the, you know, the American Eagle, the Statue of Liberty, the, the guy. And in fact, that's what makes him even more powerful around the world. The world can try to claim Superman, but he is 
an American creation and an American symbol that symbolizes the best things about America out into the world. So that's my perspective on, on, on Superman. That's why I think he's such a powerful and iconic character. He's, he, it's the same way with Captain America. You know, the, the difference being that Captain America has America built into his name. So, <laughs> so, you know, you, you think of that big blue boy scout and immediately you, you kind of think of him more as, as within the borders of America, but even that, you know, you look at cap and cap is fighting overseas. He's fighting on French soil, British soil, you know, Asian soil, Russian soil. He, he goes all over and wherever cap is, if there is somebody to be helped, somebody to be protected, somebody that is disenfranchised, Captain America steps into that and he will put his life on the line, will lay down his life to make sure that innocence is protected, taken care of. So in, in that regard, you know, so, well, Superman and, and, and Cap are, are, uh, an, uh, an uh, I don't know what the word is. Uh, you know, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, but in a, in a positive way, not, not negatively, but Superman, because his powers are what they are, is a much more immediate international hero because he can be anywhere in seconds. And I would argue then that if that is the case, the flash, for example, would fall into the same category. Same thing with Dr. Strange. I think any hero that has the ability to be anywhere on the globe within minutes or seconds would lend themselves more to being an American symbol that is in international and for everyone. <clears throat> but it, that can't be discounted. And it's actually an interesting, kind of astonishing thing to think about. I don't have too many, not too much comes to mind of heroes that are from other parts of the world that speak to me. Now, I know there are, you know, creations from Britain and France and you know, there's, there's heroes from all these other areas in the world, but they haven't had the same relevance or international penetration that, you know, for lack of a better word, that, uh, that our heroes have had. Our heroes seem like the Batman symbol, the Spider-Man symbol, the Superman logo, you know, the Captain America logo, you take any of these out into the world and it doesn't matter whether it's a child in South Korea, a child in Finland, a child in Egypt, 
easily recognizable. They know what it is. And all of those things get associated and connected back to America. And, you know, rightly so. So back to Lois, uh, you know, Lois and Clark or Superman and Lois. Yeah, Superman and Lois. Um, it's interesting that the little debate that he ends up having with, I, I think the, the fake, um, militaristic arm of the DC universe, the, the DOJ, maybe something like that. I, I can't remember right now, but you know, the, the, the new handler, the general is pushing hard to remind Superman that he is an American creation and basically like an American watchdog and Superman reminds him, yeah, that's not the case, man. That's not how this goes. American interests, especially political American interests have nothing to do with me. I'm going to save who I'm going to save. Whoever needs help, that's where I'm at. If it happens to be, you know, for this country that we find deplorable, then it is what it is, and he tries to keep himself out of those considerations. So I I understand the writing. I understand where they're coming from. I don't think it's realistic necessarily. It goes back to the idea of can you admire the art and the artist? You know, in this case, are the people in the sub worth saving when they are specifically entrenched in the machine that is North Korea? It's a good question. And it's a good debate to have. How should that be depicted? What, you know, I mean, even the guy, it's interesting writing because the, the handler says, could you have least had dropped them off somewhere where they can you know, outside of North Korea where, where they can actually be prosecuted or, or contained. And, you know, Superman's like, no, that's, you know, my, it's not for me to consider what would be the best political move. You know, it's, it's only, I'm only thinking about how to save people. So anyway, you got that going on. You've got Superman having some headaches. It looks like he's having, uh, premonitions of something that is coming and it's causing him pain. You see one of his sons get in trouble with some sexy shenanigans that, that he starts up with his girlfriend, but it doesn't end up going anywhere further than him with his shirt off. You see the other son reunite with his girlfriend, Lana Lang's daughter, but that something has shifted there. So we'll find out during the rest of the season. I was telling my wife also that I really liked and appreciated the way that they handled the sexuality aspect. You know, first mom blows up on the sun because she's the one that finds him in the room with, with the girl, with the girlfriend. And again, they didn't get very far at all. It was just making out. So she kicks it, the girlfriend out, you know, goes off on the sun. And then she tells Clark and Clark's not being dismissive, but at the same time, he feels like maybe she's overblown it. So they get in a little argument about that. 
that gets settled. And then it's time for Clark to have a conversation with his boys and the way that it got handled for, you know, again, it, it's a secular show, meaning that they, they, the, the Superman family doesn't have like a faith. They don't have some particular ideal that they're connected to. But I love the way this show is, is written in the way that they handle morality. So in this case, Superman talks to his boys. He's having the talk and he explains, Hey, you know what? Those kind of decisions are for adults. They're adult decisions. You're not adults. So you're excluded from making those decisions. And I found that fascinating that that would get written in because I, that is the proper point of view though. In fact, engaging in, in, uh, being physical with someone that is an adult decision that should only be made by adults. When you're a kid and you're, you know, you're a 15, 16 year old, 14 year old, whatever boy and girl, and you've got these raging hormones, you're not thinking straight. Your brain is not fully developed. You're going off of instinct and you're going off of massive amounts of hormones being pumped into your body, trying to trick you to do something that you don't have the developmental mind for yet. So, it, you know, it was pretty funny. They did it really well. And the boys, you know, Clark says, you guys can ask me anything, anytime. So one of the boys says, well, when was the first time that, you know, you, <laughs> and Clark sidesteps the question. And then one of the boys looks at the other one and he says, you know, he, he mouths mom, meaning the first time the Superman was with anybody, Lois, <laughs> and it, it connects him to that kind of that old fashioned waiting, you know, type deal. I also like the, I like that, that he was depicted in that way, because that just continues to feed into, you know, the way that he was raised, which is to respect the people that he's with, respect the people that he's around, respect the women that, you know, that he was romantic with. And, uh, I mean, essentially ended up saving himself for Lois and the only person that he's ever been with. So that was another, uh, fascinating little piece of writing. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of the season. And I, I hope that, um, you know, the writing stays good. Oh, so the last thing is the weird headache inducing premonitions that Superman has is some kind of robotic hand is coming up out of the earth. It looks like something is coming from the center of the earth, almost in the way that the visions are structured. And then at the end of the episode, you see this big clawed metal hand. Kenny and I were talking about it, trying to figure out what, who, what, who that might be. Maybe Metallo, maybe Cyborg Superman. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, again, what the rest of the season holds. I think it's a great show, especially the first season is very family centered and family oriented, you know, something you can definitely watch with your teens, I think. So with that. A little bit of news that I came across. It looks like Sony might be developing a Madam Web movie. 
that's kind of a head scratcher. She is connected very heavily with Spider-Man and the Spider-Man universe. I don't see how Madam Web would make more sense than doing like a Spider-Woman movie first or any other number of Spider-centric characters. But hey, whatever. Sony pushed back Morpheus the Living Vampire, I believe, until February or March. Again, another head-scratcher because I feel like they would have benefited from picking up some dollars left over from Spider-Man and the hype of Spider-Man since it's a character that's connected to Spider-Man. Let's see, what else? Uh, Disney Plus is developing a Moana TV show. Why so soon? I'm just kidding. I mean, that's a movie from 2016, and now they're doing a Disney Plus show. I hope that they do it really well. I hope that it's a lot of fun. I hope that they can get The Rock back. We'll see. I mean, no matter what, I think my littles are going to love it because they love that movie. It is, that, and I love it too. It's a lot of fun. Uh, let me see. What else did I come across? I know that Amazon is developing a lord of the rings tv show they put a little teaser out for it it's called the rings of power not excited about it the reason i'm not excited about it is i'm not excited about what they yeah i wasn't happy about what they did with the wheel of time so they've lost a lot of my trust i don't know that they can handle uh established genre the right way you know so much was changed about the wheel of time that it is turned it into something that is uh, I, it, I i don't recognize it i watched four episodes and then i fell off had no interest in in moving forward with the rest of the story because the story that is being told by amazon has nothing to do with the epic story that is told in the books and I'm not saying cram all of the books or cram the first book, make it season one. Obviously, you can't do that. It, it would be too expensive. But they did the opposite of what Peter Jackson did for, the, for his Lord of the Rings trilogy. Peter Jackson maintained the spirit and the foundation of those stories of those books in his movies he brought in elements obviously that were not part of the books like gave uh, um elrond's daughter i for some reason uh i'm blanking on the character's name but gave her a huge prominent role in the movies and it was so relevant to strider's character you know aragorn that it made sense it made sense where you got to see more of his motivation more of his thinking the sadness of the character the things lost what he is unwilling to claim because he doesn't feel worthy of it so to see uh live tyler's character become a more prominent character where she was not at all in the books made complete sense within the story of the movie but like i said peter jackson managed to hold on to the foundations of of the books and the spirit 
to the point of everything else can be forgiven. Any extra things that were brought in can be forgiven. Any changes can be forgiven because the overall, you know, vision of the books, it, it managed to be maintained with the Amazon wheel of time series, which actually is given because it's a series and not movies. They have this even greater opportunity to cling to the foundation and the spirit of the books. And instead they just wasted all of that possibility and potential. So will it happen again with Amazon's Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power? I don't know. It's going to be different showrunners. So I'm hoping that it'll be a different outcome. The things that I've read so far about the development of it don't necessarily bring uh, confidence in me. But I could be wrong. And I hope that I'm wrong. I really, really hope that I'm wrong because I'm, I'm so ready for a, a magical wizards, elves, grand epic to be brought to, you know, a TV show. I know that there are things out there that people are really enjoying that are similar, but they're just not within my particular vein of things that I enjoy. Like I know that the Witcher is within that, but I, you know, it's, it's not something that I'm connected to it. I have no, there's, there's nothing for, there for me to grab. I, I don't have any interest and certainly the Game of Thrones, uh, you, you know, the, the seasons of Game of Thrones had nothing there for me because, it, you know, because a lot of focus was on, you know, a lot of skin and, and, uh, you know, over the top violence, just not stuff that I'm into. So I don't know. I'm hoping I'm rooting that Amazon comes out with something fantastic, especially Amazon puts out a show that I absolutely love. And it is a little hardcore in, in its violence. But man, the story is so well told. And I'm talking about The Expanse. So if they can put out something like The Expanse that is high quality, really makes you think, has high stakes, characters are easily likable, then I, there's no reason not to be able to do it again. So fingers crossed. I think that's about it for now. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for hearing my rant. I will continue to scour and look around and try to bring more information uh, to the pod about things that are coming up, not just personally, but, you know, geek news and, and other stuff. I, again, sorry about the, uh, the long rant, but that's about all I had time for this time around. So. I will leave you the way that we always left you at Hispanics. Drink your water, eat your vitamins, eat your vegetables, stay safe out there. And I will talk to you again soon.